This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 11, verse 37, through chapter 12, verse 12, and can be found on page 870 in your pew Bible. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for the word of Christ, how it is able to make us wise unto salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how it is sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts us right to the quick, exposing our hearts and our souls and our minds. The word of Christ is able to wound and to heal. We pray, O God, that by your Spirit you would convict us today by your word. You would comfort us today by your word. That you would grow us who have believed in Christ's likeness and convict those who are dead in their trespasses and sins so that they might repent and believe the gospel. Give us grace to submit to the word, to hear and to understand it, to glory in the Christ who's revealed by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are lots of little Christianese phrases that we use to describe a Christian, aren't there? He's a godly man. She's a believer. Those folks, they're followers of Christ. It's good to be with the saints. I used to hear a lot to describe a Christian, a phrase that I don't feel like I've heard in a long, long time. He's a God-fearing man. She's a God-fearing woman. Describing a Christian as a God-fearing person was a compliment. To call someone a God-fearer was to honor them. And I'm, I'm hoping that among the things done today with our text is bringing that phrase back into our vocabulary for talking about Christians. But what does it mean to be a God-fearing man or woman? Is it going around being terrified of God? Or does being a God-fearer mean something else? I'd ask you, you who profess faith in Christ, are you a God-fearing man or woman? How would you know? Does the Bible help define that term? And how important is it for you to know whether you're characterized as a God-fearer. What's the reward for being a God-fearer? What does a person stand to lose if he or she doesn't fear the Lord? We're going to get the answers to those questions here in Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through chapter 12 and verse 12 today. Last week in Pastor Eric's text, which was chapter 11, verses 14 through 36, we saw Jesus being confronted by opponents, and we saw Jesus confronting his opponents right back. And so the temperature is continuing to be turned up in the strife between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders who nearly universally reject him. And Luke wants us to see that it's in that conflict context that our text this morning is found. Notice how verse 37 begins. While Jesus was speaking. That is, while he was saying the things that Pastor Eric taught us in the sermon last week. While Jesus was saying those things, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. Now, Pharisee is a word we see a lot in the scriptures and hear a lot in church. Do you know who the Pharisees were? This was a sect of Jewish religious life that prided themselves on taking the law of Moses very seriously. 
more seriously in their minds than anyone else. They took the Mosaic law so seriously, in fact, that they added a significant oral collection of laws and traditions to the law of Moses. And we're going to see evidence of that kind of thing in this story of Jesus dining at this Pharisee's house. The Pharisee in whose home Jesus is going to eat is astonished to see that Jesus didn't wash before the meal. Now, don't get the impression that this guy is some kind of germaphobe. It wasn't for hygiene's sake that the Pharisee was astonished by Jesus. It was because of the traditions that the Pharisees subscribed to in their version of taking seriously the Mosaic law. In the law of Moses, only the priests were required to ceremonially wash their hands, and not before eating at home, but before the priests exercised their duty to offer a food offering to the Lord as a part of worship at the temple. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees added to those laws in the law of Moses by requiring that all Jews, not just priests, wash before eating any food, not just the food that the priests offered to the Lord at the temple. So Jesus has gone into this Pharisee's house. The Lord has dared to eat without ritually cleansing his hands, which astonishes the Pharisee. And now the Lord Jesus is going to expose the whole pharisaical system for the empty, diabolical system that it is through a series of six woes running from verses 42 through 52. But before he pronounces his first woe, he offers an overall indictment of the Pharisees' worthless religion. They're focused exclusively on the externals. Jesus tells them that they cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. Now, it's not accurate to charge the Pharisees with being concerned only with looking like they were obeying God. I think they really sought to obey God, and I think they really thought they were. I think they really thought they were showing God how serious they were by not only obeying the ritual laws God gave Moses, but by adding to them and then trying to obey those additions too. No, the Pharisees' hellish error is in misunderstanding the purpose of the law. They thought that keeping the law outwardly was the thing, but it wasn't. In fact, keeping the law outwardly was never the thing. That's reflected in how Jesus summarized the law in Matthew chapter 22 when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And what's Jesus teaching us when he says that? He's teaching us that the law was never ultimately about clean hands. The law was always about leading a person to the one who alone can give a clean heart. And the Pharisees missed it. They thought the law was about clean hands. And so, 
in majoring on clean hands and clean cups and all the rest, they missed one of the purposes of the law entirely, which was to bring a person to the Savior. But because they made the law about external cleanliness, they made a law for themselves that they could keep. And their keeping the law of their own creation made them proud and self-righteous and condescending and hateful toward anyone who didn't keep the law they created. And Jesus would have none of this twisting, this perversion of the law that his father gave Moses. The Pharisees focused on the outside to the utter neglect of the heart. And as a result... All that their keeping of, the, of their misunderstanding of the law accomplished was being externally clean, but remaining internally full of greed and wickedness. And so Jesus says to this Pharisee and to the others who, it appears, were also in this house, You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? That is, Jesus says, you think you're pleasing God by cleansing the outside? He made the inside too. Why do you neglect the inside, the heart then? Jesus is moving back and forth between talking about cups and dishes and talking about the Pharisees themselves. He says in verse 39, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup And of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And that helps us to understand verse 41 here. If the Pharisees would give as alms, that is, if they would give as offerings for their poor fellow Hebrews, if they would give as alms the food and drink inside the cups and dishes that they're so... They're so concerned about having clean. That would show that they have love for their neighbor. That generous almsgiving would be evidence of saving faith. And so for them, all things would be clean. You see, someone who loves his neighbor is clean even if his hands are dirty, Jesus is saying. And someone who doesn't love his neighbor is dirty even if his hands are clean. So that's the overall indictment of the Pharisees. They focus only on ritual observances concerning cleanliness. They focus only on external cleanliness. And as a result, their hearts are full of greed and wickedness. They are hell-bound fools. But what else is true of these Pharisees? We're going to see as Jesus pronounces three woes against them in verses 42 to 44. Can you appreciate what it means that Jesus pronounces woes upon the Pharisees and later the lawyers? Oracles of woe were common from the prophets of God. And they're oracles of awful, awful news from God. I could give you lots of examples. The prophet Hosea prophesies this against unfaithful Israel and Judah. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Do you hear the connection between woe and destruction? 
where the Apostle John writes in Revelation 8 of the vision he received of the destruction of the ungodly on the last day at Christ's return. Here's what John writes that he saw. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And immediately after that pronouncement, the creation is made chaos and God's wrath is poured out on his enemies. The Pharisees know what's going on. Here's a prophet in the home of one of their own pronouncing on them oracles of woe. And the first of Jesus' woes concerns their damnable lack of love for their neighbor. They fastidiously keep the tithing laws, and they even keep the traditions concerning tithing that they added to what the Mosaic law required in the tithe. But they neglect justice. They neglect living lovingly and mercifully to their neighbors, their fellow Jews, which is also what God's law required. And which summarizes God's law. God required in his law living justly, lovingly, mercifully toward your neighbor. Micah 6.8 is a verse you're probably familiar with. He's told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so these Pharisees, in neglecting justice, they were neglecting the love of God. That's what Jesus says here. You neglect justice and the love of God. And how do they do that? It's because in neglecting justice, they were not living lovingly toward their fellow members of the old covenant community as God's law required that they do. In verse 43, Jesus pronounces a woe on them for their pride. These Pharisees clamor for the seats of honor at the synagogue, and they get their ego stroked by words of honor in the marketplaces. We've already seen in Luke's gospel, haven't we, that the proud have no place in the kingdom that Christ has come to establish. When Jesus' mother Mary offers her song of praise in Luke chapter 1, she says that God has shown strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Third, Jesus pronounces a woe on the Pharisees for their devilish influence on those whom they teach. Verse 44, Jesus says that The Pharisees are like unmarked graves. And since they're unmarked, people who walk over them don't see them. And they fall into their death. And they come to occupy the graves right beside the teachers. Jesus says something similar when he pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, the Lord says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 
Jesus is saying these Pharisees are dead in their trespasses and sins, and whoever believes their false teaching likewise dies in his sin. They're like people who are unmarked graves. They're dead men who cause others to fall to their death along with them. Now we're talking about eternal and weighty and serious stuff today, but I, I have to laugh as I noticed that several of you did when I read verse 45. Can you imagine this scene? The Lord is in the Pharisee's house. There are apparently other Pharisees there, and there are, we learn, some lawyers there too. These lawyers were regarded as expert teachers of the law, the Old Testament. We usually find them in cahoots with the Pharisees. And so a foolish lawyer says to Jesus, wait a minute, I just think about what you're doing here, because when you pronounce woes on the Pharisees, you insult us also. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right, woe to you lawyers also. <laughs> what woes does Jesus pronounce on the lawyers? Well, first he condemns them for loading people with burdens hard to bear. Your outline has preaching but not practicing. It actually has, if you noticed, peaching but not practicing. <laughs> someone noticed that that's a typo that someone from Georgia is apt to make. <laughs> but as I worked the text a little more, I don't really think that's actually what's going on here. They're not preaching instead of practicing. What's going on in this woe is that the lawyers are piling on people's sin burdens instead of lessening those burdens with true preaching. The lawyers not only wrongly taught, wrongly taught, that if a person is to have God's favor, he must keep the law of Moses, they then added to the law, which was impossible for a sinner to obey in the first place. Jesus is indicting these lawyers as like the godless shepherds of Israel against whom Ezekiel prophesied when he said, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Instead of unburdening a sinner with the proclamation of the true gospel of grace, which is the gospel that all saints of all time have believed, even during the time of the law of Moses, instead of teaching the law as a tutor to the Messiah who would make for himself a people by grace through faith in him, these lawyers were keeping people on the road to hell not by teaching them a gospel that would see their sin burdens marvelously cast off, but by teaching them a, a false gospel of salvation by law-keeping, which actually kept their burden on the sinner, and a burden to which the lawyers added with all of their oral traditions piled on top of the law of Moses. And Christian, aren't you grateful for our Savior in as you see him in contrast to these guys? Our Savior who doesn't add to our burdens, but who says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. How? Not because he added to our burdens, but because at the cross he took the burden onto himself and paid for it in full with his precious blood. And now we who have believed don't have a Savior who's adding to our burdens. We run free of the burden of sin, free of sin's penalty, free of sin's power, and with the sure hope of eternally being free of sin's presence. Unlike these godless lawyers. In Jesus' lengthiest woe, Verses 47 through 51 of chapter 11, he condemns the lawyers for their violent opposition to God's word. How was that violent opposition manifested? Well, in their violent treatment of the prophets who proclaimed the word of the Lord. Jesus says that their fathers, that is their ancestors, killed the prophets. And while the lawyers and Pharisees think of themselves as people who honor the prophets by building tombs for them, Jesus says they actually prove that they descend, at least spiritually, from the ones who killed the prophets. Because the prophets, speaking of the word of the Lord, they pronounced judgment on idolatrous, unfaithful, rebellious Israel. And these lawyers, they build tombs to honor the prophets, all right, and they do honor them so long as they're dead and silent. But we're going to see before this text is done today what these guys do to a living prophet whose message they don't like. They do just what their fathers did to the faithful prophets of the Lord that they didn't like. And that's the consistent message we see from the Old Testament. God's going to send apostles and prophets and they're going to be killed and persecuted. That's what I take this reference to the wisdom of God in verse 49 to mean. There isn't a book that Jesus is quoting here called The Wisdom of God, and there isn't an Old Testament passage or verse that Jesus is quoting. This reference to the wisdom of God is just an overall reference to the teaching from the Old Testament that wicked men violently oppose those who come from God preaching the word of God. And Jesus says to the lawyers in this woe that the blood of all the prophets of all time, from Abel, who was killed by Cain, Cain, who was the earliest of the spiritual fathers of these lawyers and Pharisees, all the way until Zechariah, the prophet who was stoned to death at the temple at the command of King Joash in 2 Chronicles 24. All the prophet's blood from Abel to Zechariah will be on this generation. This is, this is an all-encompassing indictment ranging from the beginning of the first book of the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew arrangement, Genesis, all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles. God's judgment is going to come onto this generation for all the blood of all the prophets. That at least means that they're going to face eternal damnation for their unrepentant rejection of the men sent by God and their unrepentant rejection of the message from God that those prophets preached. Maybe you recall that just before the greatest prophet of God was killed, like many of the other prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews cry out to Pilate when they're bargaining for Barabbas, 
They say about Jesus to Pilate, His blood be on us and on our children. There may be here a reference as well to the judgment that's poured out on this generation when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in the last temple in A.D. 70. And then the last of Jesus' woes is found in verse 52. This is like the woe pronounced on the Pharisees back in verse 44. These lawyers don't understand the Scriptures. They misuse and they twist and they pervert the law. And it results in their not having entered into the knowledge of salvation and then hindering those to whom they teach their damnable doctrines from entering into the knowledge of salvation. And they cause those whom they teach to head to hell right beside them. You didn't enter yourselves. You hinder those who were entering. Well, in verses 53 and 54, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees are not going to put up with this. They've just been thoroughly and publicly condemned by this supposed prophet who doesn't even wash his hands before he eats. But Jesus has shaken the dust off his sandal right into their eyes. And they're furious. And their opposition to Jesus will increase, as will their antagonizing of the Savior. And they're going to begin meeting to hatch plans to catch him and destroy him, verse 54 says. They're going to kill this prophet too, just as their fathers did to the prophets of old. Do you see the cross-shaped shadow over verses 53 and 54 here? But Jesus knows it's coming, doesn't he? And yet he set his face to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. And because Jesus knows that the Pharisees' hypocrisy is a terminal disease, he warns his disciples in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven, that's yeast. It spreads and it permeates and it infects. Though the Pharisees enjoyed their own perception and the perception of many of the people that they were righteous and holy and right with God. The falsehood of those things would come in due time, would come to light, Jesus is teaching in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. If that stuff didn't come to light during their life, it would certainly come to light at the judgment. And so Jesus warns his followers here that hypocrisy has a shelf life. Living a double life will work if it ever works, only for a while. Do you hear that, friend of mine? That living a double life will work, if it ever does, only for a time. But eventually, everything covered up will be revealed. And everything hidden will be known. All things said in the dark will be heard in the light. All things whispered in secret will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, Christian, don't be fearful of texts like this. As I said the last time I preached to you, at the moment you were saved, all your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for by Jesus' death and resurrection. You need not fear the judgment. 
But Jesus is warning hypocrites. And all of these things that will become revealed or become known, that might not happen in the hypocrite's lifetime, but assuredly on the final day when the Lord Jesus balances all the books, the lights will be thrown on, the doors will be opened. Now how is it that verses 4 through 12 connect with what's come before? It's probably obvious to you that hypocrisy links chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, with chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. But I think these texts connect because a motivation for hypocrisy gets exposed in chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. And that's a fear of man as over against a fear of God. A fear of man or prioritizing how man perceives you over how God perceives you. All of that stuff walks hand in hand with hypocrisy, which has man's applause as its chief aim, not God's approval and praise. That's the connection here. Man-pleasers and man-fearers as over against God-pleasers and God-fearers are apt to be hypocrites. And so now, on the heels of Jesus' excoriation of the Pharisees and lawyers for their hypocrisy, for their being more concerned with their status before men than their status before God, and on the heels of Jesus' teaching his disciples to beware of the influential and multiplying, infecting nature of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, Jesus says in verse 4, not to be fearful of the Pharisees. Let me ask you, why is hypocrisy, man-pleasing, man-fearing, living a double life, why is that tempting? At least one of the reasons is to avoid persecution or rejection, isn't it? And Jesus is saying to his followers here in verse 4, not to be governed by fear of those who can kill the body and after that can't do anything else. No, in verses 5 through 7, Jesus says, instead, fear the one who, after he's killed you, can cast you into hell. That's God that Jesus is talking about. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Don't be concerned with men who can only kill you. Don't look to impress them. Don't look to have their approval. Don't look to avoid their persecution and rejection. No, fear first and only the one who can kill you and then throw you into hell. Fear him. Look for his approval. Look to please him. This turns out to be a comforting command from the Savior. Why? Because in fearing God, you fear the one who'll take care of his people, even if their enemies kill them. Jesus says, God's mindful of the little sparrows, and they're worthless. You could buy five for one-eighth of a daily wage. Jesus says, God even knows the number of hairs on your head. That's a more impressive feat for some than others. But Jesus' point is this. 
God is mindful of you. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. He's mindful of you. He'll take care of you. You might lose your head fearing God, but you won't lose your soul. And you'll get your head back at the resurrection. (laughs) Fear God. Fear God and you'll be able to obey Jesus' command in verse 7 to fear not. Fear God and you won't be anxious or worried about your life because you will have entrusted yourself to the one who cares for you and who's mindful of you, the one who sees and hears his children. Isn't that what Jesus did? He didn't live in fear of men, but of God. Jesus knew that his pronouncement of woes and his teaching would draw the violent ire of the scribes and the Pharisees. He knew that they would eventually successfully conspire to have him crucified, and yet he didn't hold back from declaring to them the word of the Lord. He testified to the Jewish religious leaders that their works were evil and they hated him for it, but he stayed on mission. He came to preach the gospel of salvation. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rebuke those who were trusting in their own self-righteousness to save them. His food was to do the will of his Father. He came to do the Father's will. And he knew what doing the Father's will would inexorably lead to. A bloody death on a Roman cross. And yet, for our salvation for our forgiveness and our eternal life, brother and sister. Jesus didn't fear those who could kill his body by crucifixion and after that have nothing more that they could do. He feared God. And fearing his Father, Jesus obeyed God all the way to the cross. That was why he came. He came to die and to be raised for our salvation. Jesus knew he didn't have to fear men because Jesus knew his father could be trusted to take care of him, even to raise him up when men killed him. Jesus knew his father was worthy of being feared. But in verses 8 and 9, Jesus teaches that fearing God delineates those who've been born again and those who haven't. Those who acknowledge Jesus before men, that is, Those who, fearing only God, will testify of Christ and confess Christ and not deny Christ for fear of repercussions from men. Jesus, the Son of Man, will acknowledge that person in God's heavenly court with the Father and His angels present to witness Christ's acknowledgement. Whoa! What a promise! What a motivator not to live for man's approval but God's. Do you remember the scene in Acts chapter 7? Stephen is preaching to the Jewish religious leaders. He's rebuking them. Just like Jesus did, he rebukes them for descending from those who persecuted and killed the prophets, and he rebukes them for their betrayal and murder of Christ. And as they grow ever angrier, and as they prepare to stone Stephen to death, do you remember what Stephen says? Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, 
not fearing the ones who would soon kill his body, acknowledged Christ before men. And so the Son of Man stood in glorious acknowledgement of Stephen in heaven's throne room before God and his angels. Brothers and sisters, doesn't this make you want to live for Christ's acknowledgement? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. But as marvelous as the promise of verse 8 is, so horrendous is the promise from Christ in verse 9. Those who prefer to live for the approval of men in this life, and as a result don't obey God's word because it's so countercultural, and who seek to hide any affiliation with Christ lest there be pushback or rejection or ostracizing. Whatever it ends up looking like, Jesus says those who deny Christ because of fear of man in this life, not in some one-off kind of way, we'll talk about that in a minute, but as a, as a pattern of living, those who deny Christ because of fear of man in this life, listen to this will be denied by Christ in the presence of God and his angels in the life to come. Those who deny Christ in this life will be eternally rejected by Christ and eternally denied by Christ and eternally cast out of his presence in the life to come. And then comes one of the more terrifying and one of the more contested sayings in all of Jesus' ministry in verse 10 here, chapter 12. What does it mean that a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven? And what does it mean that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven? Well, let's affirm what we know. You can deny Christ and be forgiven. What mercy is found in that? Wow! Most famously, we see it in the Apostle Peter's life, who denied Christ three times in the hours just before the Lord's crucifixion. And Jesus tenderly and mercifully and compassionately restored Peter to himself after the Lord's resurrection. And we can affirm that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't the only sin that will not be forgiven. Listen to me, particularly you who are outside of Christ. As it turns out, every sin will be an unforgiven sin for those who die outside of Christ. But there appears to be something so egregious about this sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that those who commit it are unable to repent and to be forgiven, and so they die in their sins. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I think it's what you see Jesus' opponents saying back in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. So, Let's turn back there. It's not far. We heard this text just last week, chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. It's good for you to know what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that the Lord says will not be forgiven. You see Jesus' opponents blaspheming the Holy Spirit back in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Let me read those verses. You follow along, please. Now he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. 
And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They were attributing Jesus' miraculous works to Satan. You say, well, what's the Holy Spirit got to do with this? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes it plain that the miracles he performed during his ministry, he performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Listen, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's another way of saying what Jesus says in this text. If by the finger of God I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which which will not be forgiven, is someone who attributes the miracles of Jesus that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit, someone who attributes the miracles of Jesus to Satan. And therefore, they attribute the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to Satan's work. John Calvin said of these men in Jesus' day who blasphemed the Spirit of God, even as God the Son in the flesh accomplished these Spirit-empowered miracles before their eyes, Calvin said, quote, What a monstrous crime it is, not only to profane intentionally the sacred name of God, but to spit in his face when he shines evidently before us, end quote. Now, I imagine many of you have been deeply troubled by this saying from Jesus about the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've been deeply troubled by this text for yourself or for a loved one or an acquaintance that you know, and it is a troubling text. But I understand that this sin that will not be forgiven is a very specific one. That is, looking onto Jesus' miracles and so hating Christ and his work that you would attribute what he's doing by the Holy Spirit of God to the very devil himself. Jesus says all other sins can be forgiven. All other sins can be repented from, but not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of which at least some of Jesus' opponents among the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and others, were guilty. And our text ends in verses 11 and 12 with the hypocritical adversaries of Jesus still in view. Because, as Jesus has been saying, because his followers don't have to live fearfully toward these guys, when those who belong to Christ will get dragged before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, as you know if you know the New Testament, it's going to happen to Peter and James and John and Paul. Jesus says his people don't have to be anxious. When those times come, the times described here in verse 11... Jesus' people need not worry about how to defend themselves or what to say. He says the Holy Spirit's going to teach you at that time what to say. We see this happen in the book of Acts, don't we? Whether it's Peter and John when they're before the high priest and other Jewish religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, whether it's Stephen, I mentioned earlier in Acts chapters 6 and 7. When Jesus' people are are on trial and called to give a defense... What do they do? They preach the gospel of Christ from the scriptures. That's how the Holy Spirit equips them in that day. 
my believing friend. If the day ever comes that you're put on trial here in this country, or maybe because God's been pleased to set your life apart in missionary service in a foreign land and you're put on trial there, the Savior's word to you is you need not worry. The Spirit will help you testify of the gospel of Christ from the Scriptures. And the Spirit will empower you not to be fearful of the men before whom you might stand, who at the very worst can only kill the body and then have nothing more that they can do. The Spirit will help you and comfort you and cause you not to fear men in that day, but God. Now let's spend some time thinking about how to apply this text to our lives. I first want to address you who are not Christians. How big a role is the fear of man playing in your not having come to Christ? Do you fear what your friends will say if you repent from your sins and believe the gospel? Do you fear what your classmates would say, middle school and high school and college students? It's maybe never been more unpopular in the United States to be a Christian. It's maybe never been more unpopular in our country to believe what the Bible says about abortion and gender and justice and race and sexuality and marriage. To believe what the Bible says about all those things is to swim upstream against the current of our culture. And I'm asking you, you who are outside of Christ, is all of that making you fearful of trusting in Christ for salvation? Is at least part of what's holding you back fear of being ostracized by your classmates or your teammates or your coworkers? Do you fear the loss of your job if you surrender to Christ? I want to say to you that if you fear men more than God, and if you let that fear of losing man's approval keep you from ever coming to Christ, you will die in your sins and you'll suffer eternally under God's wrath for your sins. And it will be just of the Father to do that. You unbelievers, do you seek man's approval? I've talked to some of you who would say, I'm not a Christian. I know that a great many of you actually believe intellectually the stuff that the Bible says. You believe what we preach week after week is true, but you haven't yet believed unto eternal life because right now you're still more enamored with man's applause than God's. You remain outside of Christ because you prefer to please men than God. And I'm saying to you that if you prefer to please men more than God, and if you let the desire to have man's approval keep you from ever coming to Christ, you will die in your sins. And you will suffer eternally under God's wrath for your sins. Unbeliever, I plead with you. Don't fear those who can at the very, very worst only kill your body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. No, fear God who after killing you can cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he's calling you. He's calling you who are outside of Christ 
no matter your age, he's calling you through this preacher's voice to repent from your sin and to believe on Christ today. He's calling on you to fear him by obeying his command to repent and believe the gospel. Fear him by forsaking your own way. Fear him by letting go of any delusion you have that you're all set spiritually or that there is any good thing in you or that there is anything in you that would earn God's favor toward you. No, let go of any of those foolish ideas and ask God to save you today. Ask him to give you grace to fear none but him. None but him. And my brothers and sisters, I ask, do you fear God? Or do you arrive to the preaching of the word this morning in need of repenting from hypocrisy? Do you need to repent from hypocrisy, fearing men more than God in the area of love? Do you find yourself majoring on not violating man's own made-up rules of spirituality to the neglect of obeying God's great commandment to love you with your whole person and to love your neighbor as yourself? Do you pride yourself in not watching the shows or movies you think you shouldn't watch or in not using the language you think you shouldn't use? Do you pride yourself in not eating or drinking what you think you ought not and all the while you neglect loving your neighbor and seeking your neighbor's good by giving of your time and your money and your convenience? That's the sin of the Pharisees. They, t- they tithed mint and rue and every herb and neglected God's justice and the love of God. Believer, do you need to repent in the area of pride? Hypocritical, man-fearing pride. Do you find yourself caring more about what other people think of your spirituality than what God thinks of it? Do you see a big disconnect in the person that you are in this gathering or at community group or men's prayer or women's investigative Bible studies or fill in the blank? Do you find yourself caring more about what people think of your spirituality than what God thinks of your spirituality? Is there a disconnect between the person you are in public and the person you are in private? Now listen to me, Christian. Don't despair if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction. Flee to Christ for mercy. Praise the Lord for the grace and power that he's given you to repent by the indwelling Holy Spirit. He longs to be merciful to you, Christian, if he's putting his finger on sin areas in your heart this morning. Do you squelch the urge to say a good word for Jesus in the checkout line when you have opportunity? or to the mom in the park, or the dad that you coach Little League with because you don't want to look like a Jesus freak or make things awkward the next time you see that person? Do you not want them to think that you're a bigot or narrow-minded or hateful or unkind or like those other kinds of Christians that you know they've seen on the news or social media? Does all that cause you to keep quiet about Christ? I want to say to you, Christian, Acknowledge Christ before men and you'll have Christ's standing ovation like Stephen before God and his angels. Acknowledge Christ before men and Christ will eternally acknowledge you as one of his own. But if the Spirit of God is tenderly revealing to you today 
that you have as a lifestyle, as a pattern, as a manner of living, a denial of Christ. You ought to expect that he will deny you at the last day. So ask the Father to give you grace to repent from being hypocritically more fearful of men than God. Ask the Father, brother and sister, to give you grace to repent from being more hypocritically desirous of man's acclaim than of God's. May the Lord give us who profess faith in him the grace to be God-fearing men and women for our sake and for his. The God who cares for his people is a wonderful God to be commanded to fear. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word from our Savior. I pray that you'd give us grace to submit to it, to obey it. May our aim be to fear only you, to please only you, and to trust you with the results, as your son did. We pray in his name. Amen.